You have to identify what's wrong with the problem. You have to solve the problem. And more importantly, you have to make sure you don't piss anyone off. And <laughs> What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are mine and those of my guest. Uh, that being said, today's guest is a brother by the name of Kevin Easley. He's a captain uh, in the uh, southwestern United States in a coastal town, uh, where there is salt spray in the air, it is glorious. He and I had an opportunity to sit down and talk about special operations, and we talked about a project that he's working on called Tier One Athletes, as well as a podcast project called Tier One Talks. It's a great conversation. Uh, please stay tuned, and I hope you enjoy. Kevin, thanks for taking time out of your day to sit down and wrap with me. And um, I want to talk about uh, Tier One Athletes and the stuff that you're doing there. Um, and tier one talks as well. But uh, before we do that, tell, introduce yourself. Well, <clears throat> my name is uh, Kevin Easley, and I'm a fire captain for a major metropolitan fire department in the Southwest of the United States. Uh, I've been in the fire service for 28 years, and uh, with this particular department for uh, 23 of those 28 <clears throat> and um, I've spent the majority of my career, I would say since about 2000. So the last 20 years in some aspect, I've been involved in the special operations branches of the fire service, whether it's then the FEMA task force system, the hazardous materials team or the technical rescue teams. And, um, Right now, like I mentioned, I'm, I'm a captain, and I am actually permanently assigned to the technical rescue team. I have been so for the last six, uh, more than six years, and have been working as the training manager for our technical rescue team for the last four years, in addition to uh, working my uh, operational assignment. So working kind of like a side gig inside the department, kind of like a part-time uh, <clears throat> administrative job as well as my operational full-time job. Nice. So you're doing that so, kind of on your on your days off, I guess. You're coming in and managing, managing training as an adjunct to what you're normally doing? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that working uh, in, in that position of training manager – um, I, I report directly to the battalion chief in charge of special operations who manages our task force as well as uh, our, our FEMA urban search and rescue team task force, as well as our technical rescue team. And I am the liaison to uh, all the target hazards inside the uh, metropolitan area that we are in, whether it's the shipping industry, the theme park industry or construction industry. Um, whether it be maritime or um, land-based, and so I'm kind of I'm kind of available to all those people 24/7, 365. It's one of those ones when the phone calls and you see one of your contacts, uh, you, you answer it, whether right. it's the, uh, the the chief or the uh, target hazard or whatever. But um, the responsibilities in there are making sure everybody in the target hazard industry gets all their uh, OSHA permits, um, their emergency rescue plans filled out correctly. We exercise their emergency rescue plans. And then uh, then we're available for questions and, and equipment allocation whenever. And then 
um, we also do uh, quarterly training for our team for the for the department, and I'm responsible for the callback training uh, management of that side, putting on the. Are you talking about? Ta- are you talking about for the task force? Or are you talking about just for the uh, special operations team? The tier just for the yes, just for the technical rescue team. Oh, okay. So we have a training manager for the task force that manages all that. Right. And and our, our task force and the, the task force and the technical rescue team are married at the hip. Yeah. However, due to you know, budgets, you know, that's all federal money. We right. we don't borrow we don't borrow equipment or piggyback training. So um that that task force will train and operate independent of the technical rescue team. Yeah, that and our would... technical yeah. Sorry, Mikael, I say that that would be supplanting, and that would be completely inappropriate. We would never. Right, right. That's that's a big that's a big no no in the world. No, you know? no, right. Yeah. No, it's interesting. Which, so is, is your guys' task force? And I don't want to you know narrow it down too specifically here, but obviously your task force is made up completely of your agency. No, no, okay, we're okay. we're a task. Yeah, and that and that helps people figure out exactly where I am. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I can't really say the name. Right. No, I get we're, it. You know, we're, we're, we're a, uh, so to speak, kind of an eight ball of a task force. Um, meaning that, uh, we're made up of many agencies. Right. And- Which is very common in, in the world of, uh, the FEMA task forces. Typically they have multiple agencies involved, multiple fire departments, multiple, uh, PD agencies that kind of come together to provide that, the composite of that team, which is interesting. Right. In my neck of the woods, we have a singular agency that is responsible for the task force and so it's it's very in-house in that regards so it's a little bit different did you guys um did you guys get activated for laura at all or put on standby or anything uh we had that we had that two hour uh text message come through can you deploy within two hours answer yes or no and that was and of course you know a bunch of people that uh wanted to jump on the assignment got down to the cache started loading everything up and then no one's gone anywhere right we've we have uh, we have quite a few management people that go out to every single thing. Mm-hmm. Um, some people that have uh, been around a long time, um, deploying since uh, World Trade Center, who are very good at the incident management side of it and the yeah. logistical side of it. And they get they get individual requested to almost everything. Yeah, they participate and, in the IMTs or whatever. Yeah, they're in the IMTs and they're well connected. They're very highly experienced. And they've done everything from World Trade Center, Katrina, to uh, the space shuttle recovery stuff in Texas. It just it goes on and on the the missions that they've taken. Yeah. And um, they're they're you know they, they've they've made it a focus of their career being on that aspect of it, and they've they've done very well and very well respected nationally. And so they get they get you know they get that individual phone call before the team gets the phone call. Right. Like, hey, we're bringing you in. So, right. Yeah, which can be kind of interesting because then you guys get a little bit of a pre-alert, right? You're like, oh, there's actually something kicking off. So you have a bit of an idea of what's coming down the pipeline. Apart yeah. From, apart yeah, from just definitely. watching CNN, right? Right, right. Yeah, you know, it, yeah. It's it's kind of funny, you know, the intelligence <clears throat> that goes through everything. And it's changed over the years. Um, but the intelligence that comes through that whole FEMA pipeline has uh, – it's been quite an indication of where the country is and what's going on, what the real problems are yeah. and, and, you know, what resources are actually available. So, but I yeah. think right it's now a, it's evolved a lot over the last, you know, 
from the original mission, it's evolved a lot. A lot more waterborne missions now, and it's kind of interesting. Yeah, that's that's been something that's been climate change yeah. based. I think um, you know, I went I went to the first great water deployment, you know, um, Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, and I was there for a month, and that was. That, that, that's a whole that's a whole podcast in itself yeah well that uh, was quite a quite a devastating event for so many reasons but it um do you oh, think yes. do you think at that time so i this was that was i was on the job at that point but it was before my time um as a as a task force member and um i feel like that was a, a real turning point in the uh mission of task force right the 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 waterborne mission versus structural collapse that was kind of a turning point in that mission package well you know it's funny i've seen a few a few turning points in mission package you know one was obviously like i i I was i was in the profession in the during the 95 bombing of the world trade center right you know going back to that and so the huge anticipation of that was oh you know like the industry as a whole had just um probably around 93 had, um, and I think, I think, uh, the lead in this was probably one of the events in Phoenix where, um, somebody cut into a, a grain silo with a rescue saw. Yeah. Um, uh, hazmat <clears throat> became a, uh, a big buzzword in, yeah. in right that around would, 90. And there's I, actually a toluene tank, an emptying an empty toluene tank. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember that event. I, re- I remember that event happening and I remember, that, at the time, I was a firefighter. Um, I was employed as a firefighter, and I was not an EMT, and I was not hazmat trained at all. And you know, within a matter of six months of that, I went from knuckle dragger firefighter wearing canvas blue pants with no training, no EMS training, no hazmat training. That I had now, I had to be an EMT. Now I had to be hazmat awareness. <laughs> And it was kind of interesting to watch that whole evolution. Yeah. And and then shortly after that, technical rescue started to become something. And then you start hearing about this rescue systems one, and then and then the task forces are forming, and uh, there weren't that many. I mean, now there's 28. I think there's still 28. I think that's right. And, yeah. And uh, then technical, you know, like when they when they had the attack on on that World Trade Center the very first time, they realized that if one of these buildings comes down we're going to have to be able to get people out. Right. And, and so that's where the whole structural collapse technician side of FEMA was like, Hey, we're going to have to respond to this. And Oklahoma city happened. Right. And that was the first major. And I, it's funny cause I remember I, I had just gotten off shift when that happened. And, you know, here's this, that was the big activation of structural collapse because yeah. we had a domestic. Were you on the team at that point? Or is that you still too young in your career? I don't, I don't think I was on the team at that point. Um, I got on the team. Um, it, it, my, my story to get on the team was kind of funny that we had a, uh, it, I, I was in hazmat school. I had been recruited to go to hazmat school, kind of like a, uh, joint paid thing. It was, it was like, uh, I think, I think the deputy chief in uh, special operations at the time, um, he's, he's way up in California now involved in, um, special operations and OES, but the guy at the time, this guy named Doug Nakama had, he had a vision of what was going to happen. And so he realized our department was very, uh, we're a good hazardous materials department, but he realized if we were to 
expand from the 60, I think it was 60 to 85 or 65 to 80 positions on a task force deployment for a type one, that if we were to expand the mission package into hazmat, that we weren't going to be able to do it. So they recruited a bunch of us and said, we're going to pay for you to become uh, tech specs of terrorism. You know, so all, you know, hazmat A through F, including the WMD terrorism thing. And then the World Trade Center attack happened during our curriculum. So oh, there was a, there must have been intelligence coming through everything at that time that, hey, the homeland's going to get hit. And our, our agency was preparing and our task force um, during our curriculum as becoming those tech specs for our department and, and, and automatically put on the team as hazmat tech specs to, to the task force. Um, our, our task force did deploy to New York and um, our task force um, – was directly on the pile with FDNY. Right. Um, but, but shortly after that, within four years, you know, at, at that time, it was thought that the FEMA task forces were all going to be operating in, in the, uh, in, in the GWAT attacks on the homeland. Right. And there was going to be a lot of terrorism attacks and WMD. And we were getting FBI briefings and uh, structural collapse training and you know the disasters of, of what were going to happen by man-made disasters being wrought on the homeland and you know whether anyone agrees with uh whatever happened overseas or not the aggressive posture of the united states overseas kept the war from ever coming home and it, ne it never came home we, that the mission that we were trained and prepared for and created for never materialized and then like you just said you know, Katrina happens, this environmental disaster of a hurricane hitting New Orleans. We get deployed to New Orleans. And when I was there, you know, we just were not prepared as a task force to right. be a maritime task force. And we were commandeering boats, air boats were being used, fishing boats are being used, ski boats, you know, you know, all the people that left boats behind. Right. And we're searching, you know, hundreds if not thousands of blocks of residential neighborhoods and homes getting on roofs of homes and getting into the attic crawl spaces to see if we could find survivors but we're using boats that did not come with us right. we didn't have the boats with us to do it and that was a that was a wake-up call that hey climate change happened and flooding is a major problem in the united states now and it is it everywhere yep and and we've become you know at as, as a fire service, all of our task forces have become, um, what do they call them? Uh, MRPs, mission ready packages. Right. Uh, yep. They have the, we have the uh, MRP for maritime yeah. slash riverine operations. Right. And that's huge. That's it. Long answer to a short question. Yeah. There you go. Well, what I, what I love about what you just said there is that we, it, to me, that illustrates a, a really interesting thing in the fire service is that we are, uh, as much as our our fundamental mission is fire suppression, right? And yeah. you know it's in the name, <laughs> but yet our 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 capabilities has evolved over the years um, as we respond to public safety, right? What can we do to to support and shore up our communities locally and nationally, and um and and how can we play a part in you know, as a first responder, whether it be a task force based first response where we're coming from across the country to provide support into a community that's adjacent to ours or, you know, down the road, so to speak, uh, or in our own communities, what can we do to be resilient right here at home? 
And so right. it's a, I think we're uniquely positioned to flex and adapt to that, which is, you know, and a great example is that is uh, becoming, you know, adopting EMS back in the seventies. And then it kind of became, uh, you know, it's come full circle or sorry, it's, it's grown more uh, into a, you know, a, a primary source of, uh, of uh, response for us is, is providing that medical response. And, like you know, likewise, we're seeing the evolution with the special operations and hazmat, et cetera, where we're uniquely positioned to provide uh, support and resources for that. The yeah, yeah, you know, you know I think. Sorry, go ahead. It, yeah, it's you know the fire service as a whole, and everyone, you know, it's like that old saying of the two things that firefighters hate: tradition and change. <laughs> right. Um, things staying the same and things changing. And, it, and it's so true. We want to call ourselves the fire service and we want to keep fire engines and we want to keep red vehicles and you know, everything that everyone wants to keep. And it's true. Um, it is the backbone. It's the main reason we're there. It's the primary mission. It's the one thing that it's the one thing we do that no one else does, but the survivability of a very expensive entity in the population explosion of the United States and the, and the budget problems of, of local, uh, governments, we're very expensive. And so we have to justify our existence and we've had to adapt and yeah. accept many more missions. And I, you know, that whole EMS mission, there was so much resistance at the beginning of that. Yeah. Like, why are we doing this? And then you know, we got very good at it. it as a whole, the fire service is very good at, uh, and the fire engine based EMS delivery system is, is a very efficient system. Even though taxpayers always say, why are you bringing a fire engine to my address? Right. Uh, it's, you know, Hey, you have a local firehouse in your neighborhood. And if you have a legitimate medical emergency, it's probably the quickest way to get a team of medical professionals yeah. and to I you to, in a, in a life saving amount of time to make a radical difference in your life. Right. And I would agree with you a hundred percent. Nobody would ever argue when someone has a legit cardiac event and a team, you know, a fire company shows up, an ALS fire company shows up and is able to provide early defibrillation and, and all the appropriate drug interventions that go along with that. It's amazing, right? It gets a little bit uh, taxing on the system when it's not used appropriately. And so... Right. That's the real challenge. And, and that's a rabbit hole we could go down. But it's, it's, um, I, I think that what's really interesting to me is where are we going in the future with, you know, community paramedicine or, or what you insert the type of community response. And I, I don't invoke Bruno's name very often, but a bunch of years ago, um, when I was just a young firefighter, I was sitting in a, a class and, and Chief Brunacini got up and he said, okay. He talked and talked and talked, but the one thing that stuck in my head, he said, what do we do? Who are we and what do we do? And he said, we are, you know, and bold down, the answer that came out was, we are a social services agency. And as much as that yeah. can, can grate on some folks' nerves, I suppose, um, the reality is that we are here to provide a service to the community. And it's up to the community and the threat to kind of determine what that service looks like. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, to, to take it a step further to make someone have a warm fuzzy over it, because I think I think saying, oh, I'm a public servant and I'm here as a social worker or a social servant may irk some uh, fire service professionals. And I get that because, you know, everyone wants to hang the hat on the firefighter. Um, 
that that title and it's yeah. a great noble title i'm not taking anything away from it i i come from the generation of when it was fireman and and, and loved the title my kids still call me a fireman you know yeah. and i know i know it's politically you won't yes because you make them right you won't let them call you anything else <laughs> yeah yeah right um but you know i'm still you know i still wear a leather helmet i wear leather turnout boots you know i i have a true you know LA city fireman's ax, you know, from the LA city fireman's ax company. Nice. Um, you know, I, I still believe in all that, but I was just having this discussion this last week when we were going through, um, uh, uh, for the technical rescue team, we were doing, um, our, our rope competencies, our yearly rope competencies with our team. And I was discussing with one of my, uh, peers, my, one of my teammates. And I said, Hey, just remember, um, there's no one else to call. We're, you know, we're professional problem solvers. And that's the biggest thing is that we, we have become the problem solving solution to the myriad of problems that municipalities have encountered that they've never set up another system to solve the problem for, whether that's, you know, a homeless person sleeping in front of a business or an elderly person having sepsis in a retirement home to, uh, a tower crane worker having a, a cardiac event or their hand caught in a cable at the top of a tower crane to um, a homeless complex underground on fire. Um, you know, these are all things that I, I've done. You know, it's yeah. the, who would it, who would say, or, or re- removing protesters from their protester devices that have set up illegally in front of a business to shut down a business. You know, who would have thought like when you joined the fire service that, if you go into the special operations branch, you're going to be cutting protesters out of their chains and mechanical devices that they've created to shut down a business. Right. I, I never would have thought that, but that's, that's what we've become. We've become the problem solvers of society. So it, yeah. there's no one else to call. Yeah. So, so when, well, what, let me ask you this, what, what drove you to the fire service in the first place? Cause clearly, you know, you didn't have the same vision for what your career would look like, um, at this point, uh, when you first started. So what kind of attracted you back in the day? Wow. Um, way back in the day, um, well, I, I graduated from the university of Arizona in 1991. Um, and I, this conversation I, might need to come to an end cause I went to you, I went to ASU I know, I know. We're 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 opposed automatically right there, right? Uh, so yeah. we've got well, nothing. We've it, got nothing else in common. That's it. It's over. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you this. Uh, my nephew uh, is one of the top ranked golfers in the United States right now, and he plays. He he shoots his golf for Arizona State. Oh, that's got to be so hard for you. <laughs> nope, nope, not at all. Oh, you're good. You okay can, with it? Absolutely. Hey, you know what? It's, it's like, as much as I want to say bear down, you know, <laughs> I want to say go devils for my nephew because he, he's kicking ass. He was just, uh, he just made it to the semifinals of the junior, junior masters or junior nationals. Oh, that's awesome. Huh? Um, so check him out. His name's Cameron Sisk. Uh, right, he's nice. on Instagram, Cameron Sisk. And, you know, his twin is also on a full ride uh, playing golf somewhere else in California um, for San Jose State. They're both excellent golfers. Nice. And their dad, their dad was a fireman, which is part of the story. Oh, cool. Um, so, so you were, I, so you I, went to that other college. 
I went to that other co- I, I like I prefer to call it uh, the university in that state <laughs> because I think that's actually what its name is. The yeah, university I think of that Arizona. Is actually accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, and I was, uh, way back when involved in Naval ROTC and oh, cool. was going to be, was going to be taking my commission. And the year I graduated, the Gulf war ended and the Navy went from a 600 ship to a 200 ship Navy. And I was told, Hey man, we don't need you and good luck. Uh, we'll contact you in a few years if we need some people. And so this is in like I, was, 1990. I, I was sitting there, I was, I was just sitting there crying in, in my beer, so to speak. And, uh, the, the, uh, fraternity house across the street caught on fire and Tucson fire department showed up and it was probably like an irresponsible, you know, kid kitchen fire type thing. And, I watched Tucson Fire Department put that out, and I came home from school. My sister was dating a, a fireman in California, oh. and he told me, he says, hey, if you want to do this, this is what you have to do. Um, take a couple classes and go see these people, and I did, and I took an interview. And uh, the at the time, the lowest paid fire department in the state of California, a one-station department, uh, who – had a horrible ability to retain people because of their pay and benefits. Yeah. Um, hired me and I was paid. Uh, I was picked up as a $13,000 a year firefighter in 1992. Nice. And, uh, got in without, like I said earlier, without being, uh, without being an EMT and without being hazmat trained and, you know, earning every penny of $13,000 a year, working two more jobs, to make ends meet. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so. But, it, but you, but you, you know, it's interesting. I love hearing people's origin story, right? How they got into the fire service or, or whatever pathway they are following it. It always fascinates me because there's usually a, like a moment that something kind of flips, right? Cause we're all searching for something to do with our life. Right. Especially when you're in that, that age of coming out of college or coming out of high school, like, right. like what do I do now? What's next? And you know, you, either it's somebody in your life who has set an example and they've, they've gone down a path and like, wow, that was really interesting. Or you see something, you have an event and you see something and you go, Oh, maybe that's an, uh, maybe that's something I could do. And, um, absolutely. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. And, to me. and, and that, that's actually what hit me was first off, uh, you know, I, I went to university only because I had to, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I got, I left home at 17 years old and I was trying to, I was trying to get my dad to emancipate me and I had gone to the army recruiter and I had decided I was going to be a green beret. And, uh, I was like, Hey, release me, let me go in, into the army. I, you know, the recruiter had told me I could be a green beret medic, you know, if I made it through all the schools blah, blah, blah. So I was trying to get my dad to do it. And he says, I'm not signing anything until you apply to three universities. And so of course I applied for the army Academy, the United States military Academy, the United States Naval Academy. And then a couple of my high school friends had applied to the university of Arizona. And I didn't anticipate in getting into any of those schools. I, I was a horrible high school student, horrible, absolutely horrible. Yeah. I'm, I'm in that club. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I graduated with like a 2.15 or something. Like I was a horrible student. 
and had no discipline at all in high school. And the University of Arizona accepted me solely on my SAT scores, which mm-hmm. they said were great. And so I had to keep my word to my dad. And so he, he you know, was a single parent of me. And he packed me up into a U-Haul trailer and school was going to start in like three weeks. And he drove me over to Tucson where I had never been, (laughs) dropped me off in the middle of the campus and said, get your classes, uh, use the student services to find a place to live, find yourself a roommate, set up your utilities and don't call me until it's done. (laughs) Wow. And I, I went from being a Daryl of a kid um, so, you know, a, a just really an at-risk youth that needed structure and discipline to that day. Like I realized that, well, this is it. Like he's, he really means don't call me. And this is, you know, this is before cell phones. Like I'm not getting right. a hold of them. I'm in a, I'm in a city that, you know, I, I don't even, you know, I just know what hotel he's staying in. Right. <laughs> and he's probably and, only to be there for that one night and then he's out. Yeah. Yeah. And so like, I really had to grow up and I grew up and, and, um, it, it was a life changing event. Yeah. And, but I, but I knew when I was there, I was, I was still a fish out of water. I ended up becoming a good student, but I'm taking all these courses, you know, in general business and history and political science and I'm, I'm you know, doing what the norm is doing. And, uh, I ended up becoming an athlete there. Um, and I ended up, just realizing like, well, why am I getting a degree in something that I know, I know I don't want to do. Right. I, I don't want to work at a desk. I've, I've and never you're talking about studying, studying business. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I was just like, I do not want to be behind in a cubicle. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll blind myself by poking myself in the eye with pencils. I'm sharpening. And, <laughs> and, uh, you, you know, the, so I saw the military as a way out. I was like, okay, well, you know, Navy, I'll do that. And so I joined the ROTC and everything was going great. And that was a great plan. I wanted to serve. I wanted to do something other than sit at a cubicle and work for corporate America, you know, with these, this degree I was getting. And when, when that door shut, it was weird to see how the door opened, you know, with seeing that fire next door and then coming home and my sister dating that fireman who told me like, Hey, yeah, it's a great job. You know, he, at the time he, he's like totally fit, you know, and I'm like, well, he's a jock. He's, you know, he does triathletes and he was a golfer and, and, uh, you know, I, I just watched everything and I was like, Hey, I, I went and I went and saw him at work and all the guys that he was hanging out with were cool. And right. I'm like, this is, this is, this is a, a fraternity of a different sense. And it was all cool guys hanging out, you know, and, and, and I got exposed to the eighties, nineties firehouse, yeah. um, which, which when you the talk 80s, about 90s, yeah, when you talk about frat house is a lot like a frat house. It was a frat house, and and the other thing was is it was full of old guys, and that that was one of the things that was great about the time I came on, that I caught the tail end of those Vietnam guys, mm. and that was that was a great experience that I wish today's fire service could really understand, because um, I don't think we have enough. Uh, veterans from the GWAT that have taken over the fire service to really crush the, uh, I I would like to say liberal spirit of the current uh, employee that's going around that I don't have to do what I'm told or, 
something I just heard yesterday was, well, if a captain asks you to do something, that's not a direct order. Oh. And I thought, <laughs> I thought apparently we, we have a misunderstanding, you know, because yeah. you know, if you want me to give you a direct order, and, and it wasn't speaking directly to me, he was telling me how his captain had recently told him that uh, he's trying to figure out what a direct order is to him. And I, and I, I told this guy, I said, if your captain asks you to do something, it's a direct order. He says, oh, no, it's not. I said, well, it is. It's just in a nice way so that you're comfortable hearing it. You know, he shouldn't and, have to come down and say, hey, this is a direct order. Exactly. That's but ridiculous. That's, that, but that's that's the world we live in now. And, yeah. you know, um, you know, back then, if if a captain spoke, you know, the, those those old Vietnam guys, if they spoke and you even thought of speaking, man, were you going to get just berated? You're going to get an earful. Of, Why are you even talking to me? Why are you still here? I, I just said, hey, I think the kitchen's dirty. You right. Know, why are you still in this room? You should be gone. <laughs> that that kind of thing. And it's been it's been a major culture change in the fire service. Yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. So I came on uh, probably seven or eight years behind you, and um, came on in '98, and mm-hmm. uh, it um, that. It was hard for me to look at this through my, my own lens. You know, I coming out of the military, I had that mentality in my head, right? And I and I was a little bit shocked when I when I see the new generation coming up that doesn't have a similar thought process. And the question I have for myself is, you know, who's responsible for that, right? Is it is it just a change in society at large, or as an organization, are we responsible for maintaining? certain decorum and, and, uh, cultural requirements inside of our, inside of our, you know, our sandbox. And, uh, I think that that's, that's a hard question because I feel like there is an outside influence that always comes in. But if we have cultural norms that we think are important, we have to try to maintain those. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, corporate things that have shifted in corporate America and, and, and when it comes to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, what well, just the, the work environment and everything like that, a lot of that had to change. And along with that, we're seeing other shifts like private dorms and, uh, other influences like that, that are affecting the way that we, even just the cell phone usage as an example, right? It affects mm-hmm. the way that we yeah. interact with each other. And, and that in of itself is driving change. In, uh, yeah. in the way that people behave, the way that people communicate with each other, et cetera. So yeah, I think, absolutely. you know, the, the days of, of hazing and stuff like that, uh, you know, obviously society at large no longer uh, tolerates that. But, you know, what can we do about communication in the firehouse when it comes to cell phone usage and things like that? Um, I'll give you a personal example. I was working at a station and uh, we had a very important, uh, political issue that needed to be discussed that affected the the union and affected the membership um, in a very very profound way. Well, this particular station, the the tables were lined up uh, elbow to elbow, right? So we all sat facing one direction, and there was a television on the wall, and we'd sit down for chow, and everyone would be sitting side by side, which is great for watching television. But it when you try to have a conversation, you'd have to like look down the table to try to talk to somebody. And it was, right. it was horrible. So I, I came in and took took all the tables, pushed them into a square, put the chairs around it, and said, we're going to have dinner facing each other. 
and we're going to talk. And we ended up being at the table for not, you know, call, we had a few calls, but every time we came back, we sat right back down and we were there for five hours talking through the That's issue. Awesome. It was amazing. And, and the rule was, Hey, TV's off. I hit the remote. <laughs> And we're going to put our cell phones down because we need to talk about this issue. And so we started talking about the issue, but it evolved into just a great conversation around the horn. And it was just because of the structure of the room that had prevented us from having these conversations before. So some of those things are, are within our control, right? And we have to deliberately uh, engage in change making. Yeah, de definitely. And, you know, I think, I think one of the things that gets lost sometimes well, first, I, I think one of the big changes that happened is we went from a job to a profession mm. and, and that, that legitimately happened. And that, that happened with, you know, change in mission package that had, that happened with change of liability and civil service and realizing that like cities were getting sued for things that were happening. And all of a sudden it was like, well, what are all these firefighters over here doing? And civil mm. service got, involved in how we were managed and how we lived. And, you know, there are so many factors from communications to computers in the workplace, to cell phones in the workplace, to um, uh, mixing ethnicities and genders into the firehouse because of, and, and they've all been good things. I'm not saying anything negative about it, but it changed everything. It changed, it put a dorm, you know, when you, when you put women to, in, into a predominantly male situation, um, then all of a sudden you have to give them the right to have privacy and right. that's, that's their God given right. You know, who doesn't want it? Well, that created, it, they weren't only going to get bedrooms, but now everyone got a bedroom. And in those bedrooms, I would argue across the country, most fire stations in those bedrooms now have TVs in those bedrooms. And then yeah. we have wireless internet and people have cell phones in their bedrooms. So people can disappear to their bedrooms because there hasn't been, there has never been a rule made that you cannot be in your dormitory room between certain hours. There's always that rule made from back in the day when we had the giant dorm of you cannot make your bed until these hours and you cannot retire before these hours. But that doesn't mean you can't go to your room after your station cleaning chores have been done. Right. And it, it's created a divide in the fire service. Yep. And, and it, it's made people not be close and, and have the camaraderie. And what you did by putting those tables together and looking at each other was an effort to bring back what had always been of the small team family. Right. And it's huge to have to, if you're going to risk your life with someone, you better be close to them. Yeah. And, and, and it's not just structural firefighting when you risk your life. Nowadays, you're risking your life just driving down the street. You know, when, when Atlanta fire department has bricks thrown through their windows because they're responding to a medical call um, after after a, a, a domestic uh, police-involved shooting, and the fire department has not newsflashed everybody out there. Fire department does not carry guns, so yeah. why why are you throwing rocks at us? What you know? Why are you burning down our rigs? Yeah. I, I don't get that one. Yeah. You know, we're here to help everybody, regardless of what you look like, what you say, what you believe. We're going to help you. That's what we do. We solve your problems. If you're hurt, we'll take care of you. Bottom line. hundred percent. So the, so how, how do you feel like the culture has impacted that though? 
in internally our culture uh which part the the the, the loss of the family unit yeah at work yeah um I, I think a lot of it has come from like you already hit on it uh the cell phone and then and then you have um oh a, a big thing is computers computers have had a huge change hmm. huge change because it, it's turned us into screen watchers whether it's doing your uh, uh, didactic online training that that uh has become I don't know if you guys have this problem, but it seems like there's about 25 hours worth of things to do in a 24 hour day. And you're <laughs> supposed to also get rest, some rest while you're at work. Right. You guys have that, like that overload of work. I, you know so, what? I think so. Yeah, it can be. It depends on the station, right? Of course, there's, there's some stations where I'm like, Hey, we're going to train. We're going to shop and eat uh, good food. We're also going to PT. And that leaves you with 23 hours to do whatever you need to do. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's some houses like that. And then there's others where you're like, yeah. we're running so many calls that you can hardly take a breath. But on top of that, you got to train, you got to, you got to eat chow, you got to take care of the house, you know? Yeah. And yet, and you're also running 20 calls. Yeah. You know? So we have that, we have a dichotomy there in, in our organization where we have the peripheral stations that, that have those, the flexibility to do whatever they need. Um, but yeah, but yeah, we but have that to too. Hear, but I hear yeah. what you're saying though, between training requirements and, um, you know, running calls and, and taking care of the house and all the other stuff you got to do that there is a lot, yeah. you know? Yeah. And, and so, you know, bringing that computer-based training into the station, put, you know, wireless in the station, it brought computer screens. People are sitting down looking at screens instead of talking to each other. Yeah. There's, I think there's more online training in the fire service right now because it, the administrators that run our departments have bought off hook, line and sinker that we can do paramedics, e hazmat refresher training, um, in-service training, uh, EEO training. We can do it all by computer. We can all do it by computer-based training instead right. of actually getting together and having the discussion. Yeah. Like you said, around a square table, yeah. doing it in person for real. Well, it reduces you know? expense, right? You don't have as much windshield time. You don't have as much uh, out-of-service time. And, and you can capture those individuals. You don't have to pay instructors you know, all these hours to be present to teach or what have you. It's a... Um, there, I, and I would argue this, there is some validity to that, but at the end of the yep. day, this is a very task level hands-on job and you right. have to, and to your point, the way that I operate with my partners on that crew matters and, and yep. we have to build trust and es establish interoperability amongst our crew members. And how do you do right. that if you're not physically going out and training together? You can't. Yeah, the way that the way that you move on the fire ground versus the way I move is going to be different, and we have to see that in one another and then adjust. Right. Yeah, and and you have to have you know the concept of the uh, immediate action drill, whether mm -hmm. you know whether it's something from the basic fire academy of uh, you know we call it you spot the pump, meaning you pull up, set the air brake. Yep. Someone's going to get the water supply. Someone's pulling a pre-connected line. That type of thing yeah. to anything like in in a you know in a special operations world of whether it's a vehicle extrication or a white powder call, you know, that everyone knows as soon as that key term is, is stated that everyone knows what they're jumping into. That's only from reps and hours and hours of training. Right. You know? So, and that's, and, and, and knowing what the other people are going to do, that's from the intimacy of living together as a family and not disappearing into your dorm rooms and not staring at a TV and, you know, in, in a line of tables during 
chow time. That's right. that's from having those meaningful conversations, looking at each other and caring what the other person has to say, listening to them to understand instead of to respond. Right. You know? Well, I remember sitting at a table uh, not too many years ago and somebody, you know, he's looking at his phone and he sees something hilarious and he shares it with the dude next to him. And the rest of us are sitting there like, what's so funny? And they're over there giggling, you know, oh yeah, this is hilarious. And he's just showing his phone. I'm like, man, this is, you know, these little compartmental, and I know everyone needs to have their little sidebars, right? But while we're sitting having dinner together, this like little compartmentalized conversations, it really was counterproductive um, to what we're trying to do as a company, as a crew together. So it's, it, it, by itself, it's not such a big deal. But the problem is, is in the context of everything else, training being migrated to an online platform, um, not getting the, the real live sets and reps that you need to. And in our organization, we have a large, uh, we call them rovers, right? Where our firefighters are transient. And uh-huh. so we have this rover pool. So at any given day, my truck might be comprised of a, 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 a mixture of folks, some of which I've worked with and some of which I have not. And so that, you know, we all, we joke, hey man, we've all been trained the same. However, without the sets and reps together, we're not going to be as effective as we could be. No, you're, you're, you're at that point when you're, when you're mixed like that, you're only as effective as someone's first day on the job. Mm, yeah. You know, like if you have four people that have never worked together, you're really only as effective as the lowest common denominator of training, which is your basic fire academy. Yeah. Well, you're, de- yeah, you're absolutely hamstrung. Okay. I'm going to tell you a really yeah. sad, I'm going to tell you a story that just grates me to no end. Okay. This is go, this goes way back in my career, but I showed up at a firehouse as a, as a roving firefighter and dude comes out, he's an acting captain and he goes, Hey man, the engineer's off. And he looks at me and this other firefighter who are both roved in for the day. And he goes, Hey, the engineer's going to be off for on a partial vacation for a few hours. Can either one of you move up and drive? And I'm like, well, you know, I, I think so. <laughs> I go, yeah. I mean, I, I, if we can go over the pump together, like let's review the pump. And then I think I'm solid. Like I just need to review it with somebody though. Cause I haven't done it in a while and I'm not super salty at it. And, um, the other kid <laughs> looks at me and looks at the guy and goes, oh, I got it. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh sweet. He's got it. So I jump in the backseat, set myself up for a day of, of backseat firefight. And I'm like, I, I'm a, I am happy as a hog and slop. Right. 30 right. minutes later, we respond on a garbage truck fire in a parking lot. So he's got his load dumped. There's a huge pile of garbage on fire. So I jump out, bottle up, stretch my line, and I get to the end of my line, and I'm waiting, and I'm waiting. <laughs> and I look back, and I see these two goofballs standing there, scratching their heads, standing by the pump panel. And I was livid. And all I could think was, man, if this had been a house fire, if somebody's life had been hanging on the balance here, and we're and you guys, you said you got it, you know. And this was because you had a mixed bag of nuts thrown together, and yeah. and, and a problem was introduced, which was the engineer was off, right? So right. suddenly we're we're hamstrung, and put in this really really horrible situation, which thank heavens, no, was not tragic. But right. had all the comp- had all the components to be tragic, right? So yeah, yeah. That's that was a really strong. You know, this happened probably. I probably had three or four years on the job, and and it's has stuck with me um, to this day. Here I am, you know, so many years later, and it just sticks in my craw. I'm still mad. <laughs> I am you, so mad you, about that day. 
but you know what? It, that that's part of that's part of your formative experience of, yeah. of who you became. Mm-hmm. And you know, we all have those. We you know how strong like we we have ex- experiences where you see someone do something right, and you're like, I want to be that guy. And and you work to get to that level. And then you have those experiences where they're negative, and yeah. you never forget those. Yeah. And, you know, and it's like I don't ever want to be that guy. Right. Exactly. And you know, it's, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, you see it all over, uh, there's all these great sayings throughout firehouses and sports teams and special teams, you know, train like a champion today or play like a champion today. Train as though your life depends on it because it does. Right. Uh, complacency kills, you know, people didn't make these up just to sell like desk plaques, you know, (laughs) you know, those are, those are real things that, that actually, exists like if you're going to be in a profession of action then you know you're you're always going to result to you you know if you don't train enough where your your basic foundation becomes advanced and your your advanced skills become your basics and you're always thinking like i can always do my basics you're probably not gonna be able to do your basics if you've only discussed in concept or done online training Right. You know, for those advanced things. And yep. obviously, you know, there's a reason we have promotional exams to go from the back seat to the left front seat and from the left seat to the right front seat. You know, operating all of the vehicles in the fire service, it's not as easy as it was 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're very complex. And it and it's not just a pay raise going from the back seat to that left front seat. It's at, that left front seat is incredibly important. It's I mean, if you think about it, you're on 24-7. Every single call is a life-saving call for your peers. Yeah. You're, you have you have your two two to three peers in your vehicle counting on you to get them safely to solve someone else's problem. You know? And yep. operating that vehicle 100%. is no joke. Yeah, the burden it, of responsibility it, is tremendous. It's huge. It, you know, I tell my engineer all the time, like, hey, man, you're the most important part of this crew. You're my partner. I treat him as a partner. I mentor him. Um, he had been he had been my backseater before um, at rescue, and now he's now he he has what I think is the coolest job in the entire fire service, which is uh, the engineer that drives a heavy rescue. <laughs> um, you know, because he gets to do everything still. You know, right? And he could and he gets to drive, um, but he operates all the cool machinery and sets up all the cool machinery. And you know, at fires, he's his own unit leader. Right. You know, he takes the firefighter behind him, takes him and works with him. And I take the other one and work with them. But, um, but yeah, that, that person, I tell him all the time, it's, you know, the, the driver operator, engineer, chauffeur, whatever you want to call it, probably the most important person on the fire ground. That person can make a good crew look bad or good based on their abilities. Yep. Simply on where you spot the truck. From yep. the very, from and, the very minute you set the brake, like, and, and, just and there's no there. way, there's no way to train for spotting. There, yeah. There's like it's different it every time. single time. It's different every single time, and I, I've never been able to articulate that to someone that aspires to that position of, well, where should I spot here? And you start thinking about all the variables that are involved. Yeah, it's almost impossible to train for that. That's just an experience and. Uh, um, a gross exhibition of your ability to have good judgment. 
Yeah. There's you know? an interesting I, mix of, of, of basic skill set and big picture thinking that has to happen as well. Because not only yeah. are they thinking about, hey, how am I going to line my cross beds up so that the, that the uh, hose line can uh, shoot out smooth and, and effectively not run into cars and gates and fences and whatever, um, but also right. thinking about incoming apparatus and, and ladder yes. companies and all these other variables that are playing a part in on the fire ground. Um, yeah. All that matters, and it has to be considered. And they can't just turn to the, to the skip and go, hey, boss, where, should I, where, where do you want me? Because the captain's got plenty going on. Um, oh, yeah. Without having to worry about that. So that person really does have to make a lot of independent uh, decisions. Yeah. yeah, it's an important, yeah. it's a very important role. Yeah, we had we had uh, one of our not not so bright engineers, not, not one of our best recently spot our rescue on a hydrant and tell us we were at scene. <laughs> Did you go like, hey, so what are we supposed to do now? What, what do you want us to do from here? <laughs> like, hey, bro, there, there's, 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 there's no... There's not a pump. There's no water. There's no hose. A single length of hose on here. Yeah, yeah. It, um, you know, it, it's and that's the easiest one to spot. You just have to remember you're driving it. All you have to do is spot the heavy rescue to leave. You know, you can pick <laughs> up, you can pick up everything else and walk to your incident with your everything you need. Yeah. Just position it to leave so you're not blocked in by other apparatus. That's right. We need an escape route. Yeah. So. <laughs> How long have you been on a heavy? Um, I've been a captain on it for over six years. Oh, nice. Best job you've yeah. ever had. It's been, yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I came from a busy fire engine before that. And, you know, I spent most of my career, um, in double houses, engines and trucks. Yeah. Um, I was at, I was at, uh, what a lot of people thought was the best, one of the two best single houses in the city for uh before i came to rescue as a captain um and uh i have to be honest my my motivation originally was you know i saw the retirement looming and the city had not given us raise in so long so i went into rescue to get the high one year to so and i, and I thought i was going to leave and i fell in love with the team yeah um, fell in love i fell in love with going to the incident of significance hmm if that makes sense. Yep. Yeah. Well, we, we always joke around in my neck of the woods. You know, we talk about who, who rescues firefighters and it's special ops folks, right? It's, it's hazmat teams. They're the ones who, when a, when a basic fire truck can out mean that as a pejorative, but when a, when a fire truck gets on scene and they, there's something they can't handle, who do they call? They call the special operations group, right? So they're kind of the, the backup to the rescuers, you know, and, uh, the rescuers yeah. of the rescuers. And, um, that's a, a very important responsibility and, uh, you know, having those extra, the, the added load of training and job knowledge that's required is, is important and is challenging and requires its own set of, uh, commitment and skill. So, you know, and it's, and it's such a fine line to walk because there's, and I think this is industry wide. Cause you know, you see those popular, uh, Instagram pages such as cancel the squad. Yeah. You know, um, I think I think industry wide, everyone resents the heavy rescue getting to scene and actually doing work. It's like a competition, <laughs> you know. It's like, hey, let's cancel them. Don't let them get here. Cut right. the patient out. Solve the problem. Like it, it, and it, and it's almost like 
it's almost like they're defeated if they weren't able to solve the problem. And that's that competitive nature of the firefighter. Right. And it, and it's great. It's great that they want to solve the problem, but at some point you also have to realize like you have to have the humility in the profession to say, this might be a little bit past our skill set, or we may need a little bit of help. Yeah. And it's one of those things that I always try to tell people that inside our team, like it, the biggest thing is we have, we have this evolution. We put every new member through that, you have to solve the problem. You have to identify what's wrong with the problem. You have to solve the problem. And more importantly, you have to make sure you don't piss anyone off. And, <laughs> and it's, and it's a role-playing event mm. and it has just an amazing amount of uh, distraction involved in it. And I, I can't give out any, any secrets to it because, you know, the only way you find out what it is is by going through it. And then once you're, you've gone through it, you become a role player for someone's future. Event. Oh, okay. But it's uh at least uh, you know I'll talk to you. And yeah, we have to talk about it offline. <laughs> yeah, but I'm not going to record it. Um, <laughs> but the biggest part is, is you know, win the hearts and minds. You know, mm. make it so they actually want us to be there. Mm. We don't, we don't ever want to treat operational folks like, oh, we're better than you, because we're not. Right. We're not better than anyone else. It, you know, we have some skill sets that we bring to the table to make you and operations look really good. It's your, it's your incident. We're just there to help you manage it and make it go much more smoothly and make sure that it was safe, effective, no one got hurt or killed. Right. Well, and, there's and that, there's a I think there's a certain amount of operational maturity that comes into play. Cause you you talk about ego and, and being able to set your ego aside and recognize that hey, we have reached a certain threshold here where we are no longer the experts and we need to bring in somebody else with some different tools, with some different skill set, different experience level. And that uh, improves the operation for everybody involved, right? And it, and it and we're talking about the big picture here, so it, it improves the call for the customer at the end of the day. And right. um, you know, and at a certain point, we can only make we can make the problem worse if we're not uh, not setting our ego aside. So I think that's a yeah. you know, it's a it's a hard lesson to learn, and I, I think that it just takes time. And again, we have to teach it and train it. And I feel like a lot of folks are like. Who even knows what the squad does? What 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 are their specialties? Or heavy rescue? I prefer to call them that actually, um, because huh. it, it speaks well, more closely to what they really do. Yeah. Well, what we prefer to call the unit is is not what our our municipalities call the units. You know, <laughs> you know, it's like I don't know why they that and, and we had this conversation offline previously. Yeah. Every single fire department or fire service organization, I should say, because we have protection districts and authorities and departments and everyone has to have a different name nowadays. And as right. such, they've decided to change the name of the heavy rescue. And they, they're like, we're called a USAR now. Okay. Uh, and it has nothing to do with a FEMA USAR task force. Right. I, I have never gone <laughs> on an urban search in the city I work for on the so-called USAR vehicle. Right. I, I I've never done an urban search on my, on the vehicle where I'm employed in the fire service. But for some reason we have to call it an urban search and rescue vehicle. It's not, it's a heavy rescue. You know, the, the state of California decided they're going to try to start naming all the type ones as USARs as a California OES resource. Hmm. And, you know, like on the East coast, they call them squads in, in, um, in the middle of the country, they call them. So sometimes they still call them rescues or, who knows what they call them and the, 
everyone has to have a different name. It's yeah. weird. It's almost like it's the same thing with our fire academies. Why can't our basic fire academy nationwide hold the exact same uh, graduation certificate so that if you chose to leave, you could go to another agency without being on uh, going through their academy again? Right. Kind of like a kind of like a national registry type of situation where you're everybody agrees this is the fundamental standard. Everyone trains to the same standard. Right. Yeah. And, and, and it's the same, it's the same for, for, uh, you know, the, the fire engineer position, the chauffeur, the driver, right. the, Pump you know, operator. The, the senior man, driver, operator, whatever you want to call it. I'm, I'm pretty sure the driving laws in the United States are for the most part the same, <laughs> you know, in, in, in all 50 States. Yeah. And I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure that, that Pierce or, uh, E1 or Ferrara fire apparatus have the same hail or waterist or Darley pumps in them. I'm pretty sure they operate the same uh, across any state line. I don't, I don't think when you cross a state line, they change, you know, and, and English is the, is the language that everything's, you know, all the, all the discharge handles are written in. Like, why can't, why can't that happen? Why, why can't there be a universal, uh, inability to move so to speak in the fire service yeah i don't get it yeah it, it is a little discouraging isn't it you know for for folks who are coming up who might want to who have to move across the country with family or for whatever reason right and they, suddenly they're like yeah. well, i'm stuck here and i can't leave my career unless i want to start over at the very bottom right yeah I we have we have people living out of state now um we yeah. had someone just moved to pittsburgh pennsylvania and he's commuting uh, He's commuting. Holy yeah. mackerel. Yeah. And, you know, I have someone in Springfield, Illinois. We actually have one guy that for a while was doing Paris, France, but that was only because his, his wife was a travel author. You know, and, and so they were living in France, but he was, he was commuting from France and that's not, I don't know the guy, thing. but it sounds like he married up. <laughs> oh yeah. He married up big time. <laughs> but, uh, well, hey, yeah, I mean, I, the, the the cost of living here is killing people, and people have to move away. Yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I, I you know, when I uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, my wife and I were like, okay, we were you know we were still young, we were twenty three, twenty four, and we wanted to go to school, and we're like, okay, what do we do now? And um, we really wanted to live in San Diego, but we were so we were scared scared to death, and the idea of trying to make our way and go to school, and we just couldn't see it happening, so we bailed. Yeah. Bailed out, came to Arizona, and and then we laid roots here, and now we're we're completely anchored in for quite some time, and um, yeah. you know we've we've learned to love it. But my point is, is that you know we really wanted to be in SoCal, and just couldn't make. We just were too scared. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a tough way to make it, make it in the world out yeah. here. Yeah, it we is. should have been a little bit more brave, but <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Everyone, everyone's leaving for Arizona now, so right. You made the right choice, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, at least, at least we already have a little piece over here. Yeah. So, I know that you know you and I talked a little bit about um, you know you kind of giving back into the fire service. You know, that's kind of why I started a podcast, and I know you started a podcast. And I want to. You've had some pretty cool folks on there, and I want to talk a little bit about what you're, um, what you're up to, and and what you're hoping to accomplish. Uh, by doing that, but I want to lead into it. I want to say something. You, you had a quote on your Instagram and it says, um, competing with who I was yesterday. And I think I just yeah. love that quote. So tell me how, how you came to, 
appreciate that quote and why it's on your Instagram? Um, probably, that's probably the biggest part of my life that my personal life that crosses into my Instagram page. Um, I've never believed in looking around and, and uh, competing with people next to me. There are always people I look up to and I'm chasing, but my personal belief is I'm never going to catch them. You know, like I, I put people on pedestals and whether it's as an athlete, as a citizen, as a um, person of a person of faith or as an employee, um, I look at those people and they're my role models and I'm shooting to be them. But at the same time, if I'm not competing with them, I'm just competing with who I am. And my goal is to get one percent better in as many aspects of my life as I can every day. So my benchmark is who I was yesterday. Am I, am I making progress? I, I, you know, there's no point in sitting around in the status quo. So I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm never putting anything out there with the conception of I'm better than anyone else. I'm not competing with anyone else. I'm competing with myself and it's all internally driven. Everything I put on there. Um, it's real. It's, um, a lot of it's my own, therapeutic out outlet, so to speak, the, the thoughts, the things that I'm trying to share that are in my brain that come out, um, my observations on life. Um, it, it kind of started like that part of it kind of started with like, I have a lot of things I, I get, you know, the, the good fire service harassment of saying things like there's a lot of things out there that are pretty damn funny that Kevin easily said that are absurd. And <laughs> And uh, they come back to haunt me at times, but, you know, um, I say them and I live them, you know, and yeah. I, and I, I get after it. So, yeah, um, that, that's one of my things. I compete with who I, who I was yesterday. I'm not competing with you or anyone else, you know, and yeah. I'm just doing my thing and I'm confident in what I'm doing. It's, it's not an arrogance. It's just, I want to live my life. I want to go my direction and I, I work hard. I, I, um, I'm my own worst critic. Um, I'm very, very, very professional, very protective of, of my team. Um, I try to, I try to stay humble and realize that like, Hey, I'm not the best at anything in the room, but I'm going to be better tomorrow than I am today. And it doesn't matter if it's putting a sawzall together in, in the, in the dark without my bifocals, which was a humbling <laughs> experience or, or uh, if it's, you know, staying on top of, uh, you know, uh, when I got hired, we had to run three miles in 24 minutes. And, uh, you know, here I am 51 years old and I'm still once a month running my three miles in, in under 24 minutes, nice. just pushing myself. Yeah. So so that's what that's what it's based on. Um, and, and hopefully other people will ab absorb that that mantra, that motto and not look around. Don't, don't compete with other people, but compete with yourself. I and, think uh, what I love about that, Kevin, is that it's, that is really the only real metric that matters because everybody else around you or on this planet have different context. They had different upbringing. Yeah. They have different circumstances. They have different doors that open to them for various reasons, none of which you can control. So nope. why spend any time worrying about it, right? But what you can control is 
what time you get your butt out of bed in the morning. What you can't control is what you put on your agenda for the day, what foods you put inside your gaping pie hole for chow, right? That's a self, that's a little bit self-deprecation right there because right. <laughs> personally, I look at myself and go, what can I do better every day? You know, I had a, uh, uh, a, ba- a major physical setback a couple of years ago, well, a year and a half ago, a cancerous tumor in my spine. And Ugh. so my life changed, but well, can't control that. But what can I control? Right. Right. I can do things a little bit differently. I can control my diet. I can, you know, which I'm very bad at, which is why I keep bringing it up. But the, there, you know, I have to look at what I'm doing each day and be better. And I can, and I think, you know, you mentioned this, putting people on a pedestal. You can put people up and hold them up to the light and go, okay, what example are they setting? Do I want to pull that into my own life? Right. I think that's a tremendous thing to do. Look at, other, well, look at what other people are doing and say, okay, what are they doing that's good? And what can I take away from that? But don't directly compare yourself as far as, you know, no. you know holding yourself no. accountable to their standard. Just set your own new standards and measure yourself against what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So and, I, so uh, I think it, that's a great quote, man. I really appreciate that. Well, cool. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it reached somebody. Um, but yeah, <laughs> at least me. You um, got me, man. <laughs> cool. Um, but yeah, like with what you're saying about control, you know, you can only control so much in your life. Yeah. And, you know, I like to, I like to call it the three foot world. You can't reach it, touch it, feel it, see it, taste it, hear it. You can't control it. Um, you know, so you have to keep your world small and that's, mm. that's where your effort is, is like, what can I control? Can I keep moving forward? Where do I want to get better? How do I want to do it? And, you know, a lot of that also, like what you just said about, um, the, the mantra of competing with who I was yesterday. Mm. Um, very, very rarely do I put a metric up for other people to meet in those workouts after I put my thought on there and those mm. workouts, they're all those are all workouts that have been done. They're, they're only posted after I've done them. They're not like, Hey, this is what I want to try to accomplish. It's not aspirational. It's not aspirational. It's, it's, it's me personally recording what I got done. If I have had time to get it done recording like this week, I haven't posted anything because I've worked like 180 hours this week. So, you know, my, you know, my posts, I don't think I've made a post in like five or six days. And, uh, but those workouts are all, they're always like, that is what is done. And it was interesting. I had someone recently reach out to me through DM, like, Hey man, what were the weights that you used? Because I'm on a new program right now of a, uh, a four week progression of the Wendler barbell method. Hmm. And, uh, I'm big on barbell, love barbell. You know, it's, it's true strength. Uh, you know, it's, it's the gym stuff. It's the testosterone release barbell stuff, right? So it's always, it's the six major lifts, you know, the, the squat, the back, the back squat, front squat, deadlift, overhead press, bench press, and row, you know, it's just brute brute force, right? Um, now it's, now it's not where you really have fire ground strength. Fire ground strength is all in the transverse plane, you know, picking something up off the ground from your right side and putting it up over your head to the left, you know, that that's fire ground strength. And that's where functional that's where that tactical conditioning circuit training comes in that I write about. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but when it comes to my barbell training, it's always based off of your one rep max, not mine, right? Yours. I write the percentages in there and that's why it's competing with yourself. I, th- this guy hit me up and he goes, Hey, what are the weights? And, and so I, I, I DM'd him back and I wrote, basically I dumped my whole program on him for free. You know, just like, hey, this is how it works. This is what I do. These days, these percentages, these lists, blah, blah, blah. He hits me back up and he goes, 
No, I was wondering what you lift. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Did so, you read my quote at the beginning? <laughs> Measure and, yourself against yourself. Right. And, and, that, and that was what hit me so odd was that, like, did you not read what is right under there? Like, I'm not going to respond to this because right. I'm not in competition with you and you should not be in competition with me. hundred percent. First off, if you're, if you, if you're competing with me and you're not 51, you're wasting your time. Right. Because you, you should be better than me. You, you know, <laughs> if I'm better than you at 51, then it's really going to ruin your day. If you're looking <laughs> to compete with me. Right. Right. So, um, let, let's hope that my numbers are less than yours and you're younger than me and, and just leave it at that. And so I, I just basically didn't respond. Um, but, but as far as, you know, the Instagram page itself, the tier one athletes, it, it came as part of my personal journey of, uh, recording some of my thoughts and being a personal workout journal. And, um, it had to do with, uh, I just really needed to find a way to put some of my thoughts down on paper to memorialize them. Like, cause I, like people, you know, wanted to know like, Hey, what'd you say that one time? Or, uh, you know, people were starting to absorb it. And then I started getting hit up. Like, how do you train? How do you stay in shape at your age? How is it that you at 50 are doing more than we are at 30? You know, some guys were asking. And so I, I started explaining how to train. And so I started putting this stuff down and, um, uh, Lo and behold, people started asking me through direct messaging, which I didn't understand at the time. They started asking me to train them for selections and police academies and fire academies. Hmm. And so I started sending workouts to people and people have been successful. And I never meant to be a personal trainer. I don't have any background in personal training. Right. Just my, my personal workout program came out of me making sure I could stay operationally effective for my special operations job. And it, it, it's crossed over into that world of training people to get ready for special operations and it's working for them, you know, having, having strength, having endurance, having longevity, you know, the rehabilitation, the conditioning to be able to, you know, you know, being able to get to an objective, carrying your load to an objective, you know, moving under load somewhere. And when you get to your objective, being able to operate and then being able to take care of yourself afterwards, it's all encompassing. And I didn't realize it crossed over into the, you know, the law enforcement and the military world as much as it did, but it does. And then that was the other thing is that, you know, being here in Southern California um, and working in the special operations branch of the fire service, we have interoperated with a lot of military and, and uh, law enforcement special operations units. And I've come to realize that we're all pretty much built mentally the same. Yeah. And, and we have a lot in common. And so one of, one of my get the, the guest, the guest that will come out next year was actually the person who inspired me to finally do the podcast. And I say that because he's a very close friend of mine. We were on a trip together and he's a seal here in Southern California. Nice. And he's a training manager as well. And he runs uh, their air shop. So by air shop, so he's a Navy SEAL. He runs the air shop. Um, so he makes sure that all platoons deploying go through all their air deployment modalities prior to they actually get deployed. So they, they, they train up for 18 months and they deploy for six. Right. So part of their um, 
train up out of that two-year rotation is they have to come through the air shop and show that they can actually do all the air deployments in that they could possibly run into through different, you know, whether it's fixed wing, rotary wing, halo, hey ho, static line, jumps with equipment, jumps with animals. They have to prove they can do all that stuff before they get checked off that they can deploy on real world missions. So he and I were just sitting down one day talking about all the similarities of his training manager job and my training manager job. And we're, and he's just like, Hey man, you should do a podcast. I'm like, why don't we do it together? He goes, no, I can't talk. <laughs> you know, like the, the command's not going to let me get on a podcast and talk. Right. So he retires next year. Um, and once he retires, we're going to uh, bring him on and the, the creation of tier one talks will come out. Yeah. Right. That's how, that's the event that, that made it come out. And I have a bunch of friends from across the country. Um, just had a, a good friend of mine named Rick Hogg from Warhog Tactical from, uh, from the East coast. He's, he lives down there at Bragg. Um, great guy, real great guy. Um, he has his own podcast too called on the range. And he, uh, he came out on a, on a California, Nevada, Arizona instructional tour. He was in seventh special forces group. He was, he, he's a 29 year vet of the GWAT and he came out and he, um, did some personal instruction for all my team guys and got us, um, shooting on, on, on a much more competent level than we were prior to him showing up. Nice. And that, that it, it's the exposure to these kinds of people that I had through my profession that I realized mentally our thought processes are all similar and we have so much in common. And when everything was put on paper, the pen to paper, and I started to understand how Instagram worked, and the thoughts are going down and the workouts are going down and I'm putting the cool pictures up there that people want to see. I realized that the 90% of the art uh, of the audience is, uh, 21 to 35 and male. And I thought, I don't have a whole lot in common with them other than I was them once and they want to be where I am. Right. So what do I have to share? And what I have to share is, you know, how I successfully got through this career so far. I still have four more years. Um, but all my friends who have gotten through their careers, whether it was as a SWAT officer, an EOD officer, a SEAL, a Green Beret, all those similar things, we, ha we have a lot of experiences to share with people of what that journey's like. And that's what Tier 1 Talks is all about, giving, giving back to those people like, hey, there's a lot of, there's a lot of road bumps in your road ahead and these this advice will make it easier with your body with your faith with your family with your fitness with your career and it's been great it's been great to drop those pearls of wisdom on those aspiring operators yeah i think that's a really important component right there is just there's a lot of um, people who are we talked about this in the very beginning is how did you find your way down this path and you know, we talked about sort of stumbling into it, right? I look back on my own journey and like, there was a couple little kind of benchmarks along the way. And I was like, as I reflect back, I go, oh, there's the sign. I should have seen that sign, but I missed it until, you know, 1998 and suddenly it all came together. But it, yeah. it and for you, you're like, you had you not been sitting there staring across the street at that frat house on fire, 
maybe you know it would have taken you a lot longer to find uh find your way down this path yeah so it's interesting um so so with the ability to share this information on social media through a podcast or through instagram or what have you it's a it's it you know you talk about dropping pearls of of knowledge like there is so much experience out there and for us to just take it with us and leave is such a waste and yeah. you can you can save somebody the uh, the years of frustration and 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 uh, doubt and misery by helping kind of open the door and and open a book and say hey here's some things that I picked up along the way take them or leave them but understand that these are some things that I've figured out now I'm gonna point you in the direction of five other dudes who have had similar experiences but in different avenues or different areas of uh, operation and here's the things that they learned. And they all apply. So if whether you want to be a firefighter, you want to be a special operator in the in the Navy or you know Marines or whatever, or you want to be a cop, heaven forbid. The uh, just kidding to all my yeah. Leos out there. No, we 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 love our LE. <laughs> I love yeah. you. Don't want to be you, but I love you. Um, right right now, I don't even think they want to be. You know, right. you know it's like right. You know, I, have, I have a podcast coming up tomorrow that I'm recording with a guy that's a uh, LE special operator. Um, here in, in, in this county, and he's like, man, this is the toughest time ever. He's questioning yeah. his career. But that's one other story, so I want you to continue. Yeah. No, so anyways, my whole point is, is that it is exactly what you're saying is our there's this shared experiences that we have. And um, I say this all the time, but we, in the fire service, we talk about leaving it better than we found it. And to me, this is an example of saying, hey, here's some hard-earned lessons that I've gathered over the course of X number of years. Here's yeah. Here I'm gonna tell you what I learned. I wish kind of the expression like, "What would you have told yourself at 18?" You know. Um, oh, this is an it, example. You, of you know, Rain. The number of times I've said, first off, like I've been married most of my career to to one person, um, but so many times I've I've had to look in the mirror or sit and reflect and mm-hmm. say, "I wish someone had told me when I was 22 what this was gonna do to me." Right. Because I'm not the I'm not the man I was when I started. Right. Um, thank heavens. It's, well, yeah. Thank heavens. It, but, you know, it, but but at the same time, I lot. You know, you lose a lot of innocence in these professions. Yeah, that's true. You, you lose you lose a lot of yourself. Um, you cannot go through. And I, I'm speaking right now from fire service, busy municipality, special operations. The the amount of traumatic exposure, chronic, chronic acute, it's chronic and acute. It's not a one-time incident. It's just ongoing for year after year after year of, of, of acute traumatic exposure to your peers, to yourself, to others around you. It's, it's the war at home that never gets spoken about. And, you know, our military goes overseas, they operate, they do their thing. They may have a chronic exposure. They may have acute exposure. They come home. They left that, even though it's in their head, they left that environment. They don't have to look at it every day. Yeah. The The problem with the first responders is they live predominantly live where they work. Even when they're off, they're exposed to the exact same things that happened. Like they, they don't get away from those memories, the exposures that have happened in their life. Yeah. And yeah. it changes you as a human being. You yeah. can you can try to say it doesn't. You can play the tough game, look yourself in the face, and and, and tell everybody, man, counseling's for sissies. Nothing ever affected me. Um, 
well, if you're at that point and you're saying nothing ever affected you, then maybe you didn't do much because it's not normal to be exposed to thousands of worst moments in people's lives and not have it affect you. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, it is. That is a, uh, you know, I don't know. I think back and I think if I would, I would I tell that to myself when I first got on this job and would I have listened? Right. Um, no, because I don't think you have, I think without the perspective, right. You look back and go, there's some perspective that you gain and you, and you begin to truly appreciate the impact that it has on you. Um, uh, once you, yeah. if, once you really, if, once you mature enough to look back on it and, and truly be honest with yourself, I think when you're young, you're not really as honest with yourself as you could be, um, for a whole host of reasons. But plus you don't have the, you know, you take these old guys who are sitting around telling you like, Hey man, just mentally floss, take time away. Like give yourself some space to process some of the things that you're going to see. And you're like, ah, I got this. Yeah. Um, so, so it's interesting. So I think it's really cool that we're putting this, this information out there and that you have this, you know, this podcast platform that where you can share these, these thoughts and ideas and lessons. And I'm hoping that through that, the, the folks who are coming up behind us will be able to be more prepared for the rigors of the work mentally, physically, emotionally, et cetera. And, um, and, and even when we get into some, maybe the refined points of tactics and politics and, and, you know, specific job knowledge that that would be helpful too. Um, yeah, but most importantly, yeah. mindset, culture, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that about tactics and, and, you know, what's in your head. I, I, I was just, you know, every, every city has every, every department has what's called a target hazard, you know, mm -hmm. and different, different things. And I was just hit up yesterday about, uh, basically it's a giant ski lift that goes over a part of our city. And, uh, one of my new guys was like, well, how do you do that? And what, what if you can't look, you know, how do you get people out of that if it's stuck? And how, do, how do you move people from car to car? And how do you, what if the, the landing below is hostile, you know, meaning, mm -hmm. you know, you can't put people down in it. And I was realizing like, you can't take this stuff with you. You have to find a way to memorialize it. So people don't reinvent the wheel. Yep. And you, you know, I, I see, I see right now in the fire service, I do see there's been such a mass exodus of the, the generation right before me and my generation, you know, people are retiring in droves. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think right now the organization I'm in, like 70% of our organization has less than seven years experience. So that tells you you have company officers that are at seven years. Yep. And they're making life and death decisions for other people's lives and their own and their, and their subordinates. But the slideshow is not there. And so the, the reinvention of the wheel is happening. Yeah. So that's, that's one of the goals of this. And, and I know for sure for your podcast, because I think I got exposed to your podcast listening to you have uh, one of your guests from uh, the Ghost Squad. Oh, yeah. Because you know, the Ghost Squad is kind of legendary. And, yeah. they, in, they think so. That's <laughs> what I was about to say. In, in, in their own right. You know, they, they, they just came, they came up with the coolest logo. 100%. Yeah. So, 100% the so, coolest logo. <laughs> yeah. So some, someone on their crew decided that they were going to play the same video game my kids play and they stole that logo from it and put it on their rig. So, but, um, but that's how I found you. And, it, and, and, uh, 
really enjoyed everything you put out, but you know, those things, they have to be shared. You know, you have to, you have, you know, lessons learned don't need to be learned in blood twice, you know? Right. So, so share that information to people coming up and take, take the kid aside and say, Hey, this is, this is what we do. And this is why we do it. Make sure that it's understood. I love it. You know, how, what, and why, you know, and, uh, let them build on it. You know, the, the, the fire service it stands on the shoulders of giants and um, it, it should be giants that, that evolve again so that more kids can come along and stand on giant shoulders. That's what I say. I love it. So, Well, Kevin, where, where are folks going to find you on Instagram and what is, what's your handle? Well, it's uh, Instagram is tier one talks uh, tier, not like tears, you know, that, uh, we make people cry Tears from of the amazing at the fire station, but T I E R <laughs> underscore the number one underscore, uh, athletes is my Instagram page. And then, um, any podcast platform tier one talks T I E R number one talks. Um, I'm out there on all of it. Uh, podcast. We're just probably seven, eight episodes in have a bunch of guests lined up that, uh, COVID's really kind of held us back from getting together with people. Travel's been a little bit restricted, but we're going to have this next year. We're going to have quite a, quite a collection of great guests. People are going to want to hear them talk and uh, share their experiences. Um, as far as tier one athletes, there's uh, going to be swag coming out soon, building the store for it. Uh, those shirts are going to be made with tier one tops competing with who I was yesterday. Nice. That's that's coming out. So there'll be, there'll be basic and there'll be, um, the logos, it's, it's a great logo goes on the back, goes, has a shield on the front. Um, and then, uh, they're going to obviously be in fire service, red law enforcement, Navy, um, military OD, and then uh, universal, uh, gray. So those will be coming out as well as some, uh, lids. Not all of us are blessed with a full head of hair for our whole life. So when we're out in the sun, put some hats on, yeah. And uh, there'll be some tier one talk hats out there too. So uh, stickers and, and morale patches to, to come. Um, and that's pretty much it, man. You know, right on. Compete, with, compete against yourself and uh, train train today for tomorrow's unknown. After. Kevin, thanks, man. I appreciate you taking time out of your day to sit down and rap with me. Well, Rain, I appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. And uh, let's. Uh, yeah, when you come out here, uh, you know where I am. Hey, that's all we got for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Kevin, for taking time out of your day to uh, sit and rap with us. If you have any thoughts or concerns, comments, words of wit, or if you just want to share some feedback, please feel free to reach out to me. I can be found on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and, of course, by email, raingray at firegroundfitness.com. I look forward to your comments. That's all I have for today, folks. Go on out there and get some.